So our first guest tonight is, is Jonathan Lee, and I think we've given away all five proof copies. Am I right? Somebody just tell me we have. We've given away all five, five proof copies to the first five people who were here. Um, this is Jonathan's second novel. Um, it's called Joy. Um, Joy is the central character in the novel. Um, Joy is presumably not what she's feeling when she plummets 40 feet towards a marble floor in the atrium at work. Um, I have to say that the, nov the novel is dark and it's really, really dirty, which I love. Um, and it's funny and it's scathing. And it's kind of, you know, if The Bonfire of the Vanities was written now, this is the book that it would hope to be. I loved it. I think it's going to do incredibly well. And he's here to read from it tonight for the very first time. Please welcome Jonathan Lee. Thank you. Um, the last time I did an event, I think I got about four people. So this is, um, this is excellent. And about three of them thought I was Jonathan Levin. I actually did, I did one event in Bath where... A lady came up to me and was pretty sure that I might be Jonathan Dimbleby. <laughs> so, um, yeah, confusing. But anyway, I'm going to read a little bit that introduces you to the office in which most of this book is set. Um, and the lead character is Joy, hence the extremely clever title. Um, and she's a 30-something lawyer. She's decided on this day in this scene that she's not going to come into this law firm ever again. She's fed up with the way her life has been going and she's going to make a drastic change. Um, she talks a little bit about her husband, Dennis. Dennis is a bit of a windbag. That's all you really need to know about Dennis. Um, and he's an academic who's writing a book about Shakespeare. His attempts to get that published are slightly blighted by the fact that he's decided to do it all in Shakespearean iambic pentameter. Um, so... If you hear mention of him, that's the guy. The offices of Hanger, Slide and Stein stand between two thinner glass towers, the Icarus Hotel on the left, and on the right a financial institution, which is said to outsource its re recruitment function to a Shoreditch model agency. The 20-somethings from the financial institution, all skinny hair and left-swerving hair, like to lunch at the Pan-Asian restaurant in the Icarus. The restaurant is called Pacific Lust. It is full of tight-skirted staff and fortune cookies that contain advice like, the secret to getting ahead is getting started. Joy is tired. As she walks through the courtyard, she takes a glance around her. It will be a relief to see it no more, this place so lavishly landscaped that it appears as a pixelated version of itself, a strange... Simple relief, like unleashing a yawn. She yawns. She decides that Dennis should ditch Shakespeare and write about the underrated art of yawning, the elastic release, the wash of air. The bespectacled American whose novel six people gave her for Christmas, six times 500-odd pages, made him the most prolific author on her shelves, she calculated. Jonathan Franzen. He'd managed to capture the varied banality of everyday life, the different shades of boredom at home and at work, the freedom which comes from the yawn itself. Why can't Dennis turn his hand to a project like that? Yawn, a great American novel. She'd buy it in a flash, but Dennis won't write it. He's rarely great, never American, and too often on the wrong side of yawns to feel comfortable trumpeting their virtues. 
There is also his distrust of modern fiction, a strangely tireless scepticism she considers while circling the firm's award-winning Japanese water garden, its six bamboo fountains and staggered granite stepping stones. When she first walked through this courtyard ten years ago, a decade, how has it happened? She decided, actually decided, that she would either love the job or loathe it. She's always avoided, at all costs, the grey decisionist centre ground on which so many build their lives. The sorts of people who waste your time with, I don't know, and up to you. There are only so many up to you's a life, let alone a conversation, can survive. Vehemence of feeling, colour, precarious energy, however flawed a person is, she'll forgive them all sins if these traits show through. In the 87 election, she amused her parents by urging them to vote Thatcher more lively than Kinnock. When old enough to cast her own vote, she opted for Blair because he seemed more memorable than Major. The thing she cannot stand is lack of vitality, and when, as a graduate of Oxford PPE in a now-defunct London law school, she renewed her life promise not to be passive, not to be dull. If Joy did fortune cookies, they'd say, make it a miracle, make it a disaster, but for fuck's sake, don't get stuck in the middle. She started in 2001 with 48 other trainees. She is only one of, she's one of only four in her intake still here. Joy, Claire, Christine, Peter. Claire Harris Bowler's partnership potential evaporated when the firm's head of public relations and brand strategy found her enjoying class A sex in the fourth floor ladies' lose, allowing a gym-built reprographics assistant to snort coke off her clitoris. Why didn't they lock the door? Why not the spacious privacy of the disabled toilet? Nobody knows. The woman now cruelly known as Coke Cunt Claire, or, or Triple C in polite company, is unlikely to stick around after her bonus in June. Christine's primary goal is pregnancy, not partnership. And her husband, Peter, well, he's as complicated as Joy. There is a loose electricity in his eyes, some wiring gone wrong, and she doesn't know which way he will go. She walks through the revolving door and steps into one of six class lifts. A flustered trainee carrying boxes marked confidential is already inside. Without taking his hands off the cardboard, he gives her a three-fingered wave, and they float silently skywards. She wonders how long it will take to get Project Poultry in order, an irritatingly drawn-out libel case in which she acts for a huge frozen food manufacturer. She'll need to leave soon after lunch. She is not hanging around for the crap that comes after. See you later, Joy says, exiting on the fourth floor. Oh, flustered says, doors closing on his words. I'll hopefully make it to your speech at five, but I have a doctor's thing at... People, Joy has noticed, are a lot sicker than you imagine. Here it is, her end of the corridor. She takes a breath and lingers in the doorway to her office and says to her PA and to the Italian secondee in loud, ringing, happy church bell tones, Good morning! In moments like this, she feels like a poorly paid actress in an advert for antidepressants. They look up with flummoxed expressions, but are nonetheless well-versed in office theatre. Their smiles arrive. They return the greeting. They place emphasis on the good in good morning. How are we doing for time? Is there time for a little bit more?
Um, I mentioned Dennis the Windbag, and I thought I'd just read you a, a short section from him. Half the book is written in the kind of third person of, uh, of the account of Joy's last day when she's decided she's, she's going to give up her job one way or another. And the rest of it is told um, in monologues, really, from five of the people who knew her best. And um, it's, that happens after the event of her fall that Damien mentioned, where she kind of falls 40 feet in unjoyful fashion. And they're talking to a trauma counsellor that the firm's employed. This is Dennis. There's a bit of smut in this, just to make Damien happy. This thing I'm about to tell you pertains to the relationship I have with my wife, Joy, and pertains also to what happened on that Thursday night before her accident, and it's going to sound strange even to someone who's heard the things you must have heard. But what I'd like you to bear in mind, to bear in your open medical mind, is this. A couple, a man and a woman, or man and man in these enlightened times, woman and woman even, can get used to slash habituated to slash accustomed to anything. People can become familiar with torture, for example. People can come to love hot wax and hostage takers. People can, in really quite surprising numbers, decide that the best way to spend their weekends is in the company of whips and chains, ball gags, muzzle gags, slave hoods, gimp masks, punishment canes, a range of male and female Gorean-style slave restraints, Penis restraints, vaginal restraints, punishment implements, whips, floggers, paddles, straps, belts, rattan, kubu, public school, disciplinary and cane sets, wazers, floggers, did I already say floggers? Spanker sausage, TM. Steel fetters, lockable male and female climax denial devices, penis pinches, pussy poppers, testicle ticklers, asylum slash military slash religious zealot pattern discipline thongs, straight jackets, medieval massage maimers, futuristic things they don't even have a name for yet can decide they wish to be in the company of such things on a given weekend in London's vibrant Vauxhall. All I'm saying is that the human mind, given time, has a great capacity for embracing the strange. It starts with a nearly normal thing and ripples out from there. Perhaps you, you haven't made love to your wife for a while? Things have gone off the proverbial boil? Sex in the language of mag women's magazines left lying, spine strained around your constantly redecorated home, lacks a certain sparkle. Maybe there's an incident in your wife's past that means lovemaking has ceased to bring her much happiness. Some deep evolutionary need to go through the motions of reproduction has crumbled under a weighty sense of despair at what those motions mean in modern life. When you may not have time to care for your child, when your child, growing old, may not have time to care for you, when, even if everyone has time, all the time in the world, some cruel external force may interfere. So one night, after a few drinks, maybe seven, certainly more than five, in tacit acknowledgement of your need for intimacy and the lack of sparkle and boil, you suggest to her that you watch a DVD, and that consistent with tip number five in the 10 Quick Marriage Menders piece you perused, a DVD be of a softly pornographic nature. Be in fact a DVD you happen to own, a DVD called Chalet Girls Erotic Avalanche, a DVD which you've hitherto kept covered by sports socks and gleaming white boxes unwittingly arranged into a draw-sized version of an actual avalanche, 
a DVD showcasing Chalet Girls Lady Bits, but also, for this is to be a shared experience, <coughs> some willies. And that, the watching and subsequent intercourse, etc., goes well, really pretty well. And for your next time in advance, you procure from one of your bearded PhD students a small bag of cocaine, something you and your wife haven't done together for years. Snort cocaine, that is, though with sex it's also been a while. And you have some of this cocaine together in front of the DVD, just enough to put you at a nice, elegant remove from reality. And that, the subsequent intercourse, goes well, really pretty well indeed. And so when several weeks later, you bring out the remaining cocaine at a small party with close friends, and things have become somewhat jokey and lewd, and there are only four of you left in the room, and the other man's wife, looking not unpleasant in the druggy moonlight, has her hand on your thigh. And you look up to see her husband's lips on your wife's shoulder, one shoulder of the pair of shoulders you've always meant to tell her you love. You don't awfully mind, because it is small fry compared to the contact you've seen on screen. And your wife says, let's call it a night, this is getting weird, and you call it a night, but feel somewhat disappointed. Feel, in addition, surprised by your own disappointment and amazed by your surprisedness. For this is a time in your life when surprise seemed a thing you could not feel. Months pass. You have one night when the four of you go a little further. And when several mornings hence, you and your young wife sit up in bed and talk about how this has to stop, not necessarily because it's unpleasant in principle, but because it's making everyday contact with Brenda and Anthony rather awkward. <laughs> at the supermarket, at the Islington Farmer's Market. Well, when this happens, you start to consider your options. What I'm saying is, we had cool girls every Thursday. The words, which girl shall we order in for tonight, became as normal as, do you have any cash for the cleaner? I'm, I'm glad you read some dirty bits. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that you did. Um, I think that, well, let's, I'm going to take a quote from the novel as our, as our starting point. Um, this is Peter, who, is, who, we, who we didn't meet in that reading. And Peter is, oh, he's disgusting. I mean, he's the, <laughs> kind of, he's the kind of colleague that every woman hates. Um, and um, but he is he is he is not just one dimensionally disgusting. He's disgusting in, in every dimension possible. And he's talking about secrets in the office. And he says the truth is that every single person in our office has something, however plain, however puzzling to hide. In any office, secrets are like electricity, the strange currencies that keep the lights bright. But it's especially true in the city. Um, and I think that's kind of. On what, on what the whole book hinges, isn't it? It's all mm. about people's secrets. Mm. I think that's true. Um, I used to work in, an, in a law firm, which may or may not resemble <laughs> the one in this firm. Um, but, yeah, the thing that struck me, and which I kind of miss, actually, now that I'm writing and I, I'm not regularly in an office environment, is that everyone has something that they're whispering about, about someone else. And... Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that makes the most banal, terrible of jobs quite bearable. And I used to work at a firm called Freshfields, which is, we're going to talk about etymology in a minute, but um, it's kind of a, a great example of words being used for false advertising. Freshfields, 
It would have been better off being called stale rooms or something <laughs> like that. Or killing fields. Or killing fields. But, but one of the things that kind of can make a job that you're not particularly into interesting, I think, is just the, the amount of chatter on a daily basis that people are, uh, you know, constantly... And everyone has a secret passion they want to pursue as well. Everyone has a, you know, a, a new idea that they want to turn into a screenplay or... Um, I think I say in the book, you know, everyone's got like an idea for a new kind of duck feather duvet, but no one has time to stuff the duck. You know, it's kind of, it's just weird. It's one of those things. And I think that I think that's one of the things that's very attractive about about the book is that we we have these monologues because everybody's talking to a therapist and a brilliant idea to have a therapist because they feel like everything's in confidence and of course we're reading all the therapy notes, which is great. Um, and the, and and the secrets unfold all the way through the novel right until the very end. Um, and I just wondered, when you started writing each character, did you have in mind, you know, this is Peter and it's a secret that he did X, Y, and Z, or, or did you make them up as, as, as you went along? Um, I didn't really have them in mind at the outset, but um, I, I would like to be the sort of person who plans and structures novels well in advance and kind of seeds certain things that will appear and come back in the, in the narrative at later points. I don't really have the patience to do that because I feel like, you know, being a writer involves actually writing. And if I haven't somehow increased the word count or polished a sentence in a given day, I get a little bit depressed and tetchy. And then, you know, my wife, as well as me writing all of this fictional smut, has to put up with uh, a tetchy bastard hanging around the house as well. But, but what I did do was... Um, I tried to write in lots of different voices. I had 10 or 12 different voices. Yeah, which I, I was a bit worried about when I started because I was thinking there are a lot of people to follow here, mm. but they are all sufficiently, I mean, they're very clear, they're, they're archetypes, aren't they? I mean, you've kind of, you know, there's Barbara, who's the kind of Mardi secretary, who's, yeah. who's actually quite happy being bitter and unhappy, mm. or, you know, and she gets her dream in the end. I shouldn't say that. She's, uh, she, kind of gets, she kind of gets her dream in the end. Yeah. Um, but it's managed to be measurable anyway. Yeah, <laughs> like most of them. But um, no, it's interesting what you said, actually, about the archetype thing, because I think everyone recognises certain types in an office. There's the slightly sleazy player. Um, there's the absolute office bore that you don't want to get stuck with in the, by the coffee machine. There's the aggressive older secretary who will thwack people with her stick and who is more feared and revered than any of the senior professionals at the firm, at the company. Um, so I wanted to take those archetypes and then try and dip into them and make them actually real and three-dimensional. That's what I hope to do. And you did. And what, what kind of person were you in the office, do you think? I think I was probably... Perfect? Um, you were perfect? I, was a, no. yeah, <laughs> no. I think I was probably a, a cross well, between the... I did, you know, I managed to find my wife in the office, so um, not just randomly you know, <laughs> under a pile of papers or anything, but... Um, and did you? And when you found your wife in the office, was that was that a secret that you kept in the office that uh, you both did? There was probably a little bit of that for a while, um, mainly because I was pinching her off someone else in the office. So it was. So definitely a bit of a secret a in the. In confidence for a while, <laughs> yeah. A bit clandestine. Um, did you did you slightly when you were writing this take revenge on any of those people? Because um, there are where you're really caustic about some of the characters. Well. <clears throat> I mean, there, there are one or two minor characters who might be recognisable, but actually what I found is that people in and of themselves are not... I mean, they're interesting, but they're more interesting when you splice them together yes. with characteristics from other people. So there's a lot of chucking people I knew in the blender and seeing what 
comes out. The other end. I wanted to find out much more about Samir. I felt I, I was really interested in him and his his story. And when he's he's a personal trainer in the in the office, or he wants to be a personal trainer, he's assisting and seems to be slightly crushing out on the Australian guy mm. who works in the, in, the, in the gym with him. But his you know, and he, and he sort of feels like a disposable character, but then you give him this kind of amazing, tragic backstory, and I felt like, I, I, I could almost read a whole novel about Samir, I felt so sad for him. That's nice. Um, he's kind of a counterbalance to some of the other characters. He's, you know, uh, there's a lot of extroverts in this book, and mm. he's an introvert, and he's alone in the basement gym that this firm has. Um, and like a lot of law firms or big companies, it has an in-house doctor, an in-house dentist, an in-house gym, um, so the idea of taking it as a place to set a novel it's, it really is a microcosm it's a world, it's a life um, and he's down in the basement in this windowless room alone with his thoughts a lot and I just found that an interesting idea um, and so his stuff is a lot more quiet and internal but hopefully mm. balances out some of the other bits in the book um, there, there, were, there was a spate of suicides a few years ago in the city um, and I was wondering if that was a kind of part of the inspiration for you um, yeah, I mean, the word, the word inspiration kind of feels awkward, doesn't it, in that context? But it's true. I mean, that's what we're, we're writers are vultures, right? Um, I, someone I uh, didn't know particularly well, but someone I worked with um, uh, died, and there was an implication that, that it might have been suicide. And it's strange when you... What, in the workplace or out of the workplace? Or? Out of the workplace, but very much connected potentially to the kind of hours that that person was doing. Um, even if you know someone very slightly um, or don't know them at all, I think you, you think you have an image of them and then you're forced to, to question what might have been going through their head. And maybe the obsession with secrets is partly about that. You know, how much do we really know anyone that we deal with, anyone that we work with? How do we even know, you know, stuff about our family members? That's kind of what my first book was about, I guess. Mm. And it's interesting, I mean, you've made that transition now from being a sol solicitor mm. um, to, I mean, you still work part in an office when, with the British Council, mm. but your, your identity now very much is as a writer. Do you feel like you've kind of fully left up that world behind now? Um, you know, there's still, there's still an element of the, you know, corporate corporateness to what I do now I suppose in terms of part-time work um but I do feel like I've kind of moved on moved on from that phase and this is a sort of like it's I know it's quite a caustic book but it's a sort of this sounds really pretentious but I'll say anyway um it's a kind of love letter to a point in my life that I think of kind of quite fondly now even though it was you know pretty awful for a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm more or less unemployable and haven't worked in an office for 10, <laughs> for ten years. Um, and, uh, and, it, uh, and it rang bells with me. I mean, that's what the times was like. You know, there was a physiotherapist, there was a hairdresser, there was a dentist, occupational therapist. I mean, any, you know, there was a supermarket. You didn't need to leave, mm. basically. You could just have lived there. And I'm sure that some people did. I mean, I'm sure that some people had little rooms where they kept clothes and children and all kinds of things. <laughs> um, uh, Sylvia, question. Hello. Um, I did want to ask you what is badgered at, but... Um, badgered at, ah, oh, yeah. my question is, after hearing about um, Agnes's husband, and also as he was a lawyer, one thing that... about lawyers is that some of them are quite keen on the whole BDSM, you know, that kind of side, so why do you think this is? 
This is a quite a specific question. Yeah. <laughs> have to you do might have to, to <laughs> translate the acronym of BDSM. Um, um, lawyers, basically lawyers, lawyers, lawyers kind of, you know, are they translating their sort of power um, symmetry or asymmetry in their, from their professional life into their sexual lives? <laughs> in other words, why are they so darkly sexual? Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of that in the bit. I mean, there's a lot of kind of, you know, expense account going, you know, going down to Spearmint Rhino type places, yeah, isn't there? And, um, is, that ref is that standard is it, or have you exaggerated I think that? I think of a, it's of a given time. I'm not sure it still goes on to quite the same extent, but there is definitely something about that. And um, there's also something, you know, aside from the, the paying for women to strip and all the rest of it, which I know that a lot of the the female lawyers in leading city law firms, you know, obviously deeply uncomfortable about, as are lots of the men, because you immediately create an exclusion zone around certain <laughs> social mm. client entertaining activities. Um, but th there's also just this thing of a lot of jobs out of university, you start with a mixed bag of people of different age groups and all the rest of it. And if you start a big law firm or a big bank, you start with maybe 50 other people mm. of your own age. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a freshers' week at university again. So there is that. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, but there's certainly an element of, you know, that environment breeding kind of, I was going to say, eroticism. <laughs> But I think what I mean is just, you know, flirting and yeah. power stuff. And it's stuff. part of the, the kind of language of the office. But you, you, you write, um, I mean, you write as joy in the book. Was that fun for you, putting yourself in the body of a woman and writing her way? <laughs> um, was it fun for me, putting myself in the I body? I know, as I said, that question. It's a phrasing, Damien. It's really phrasing. bad. Um, I... Yeah, I mean... Was it, it was a challenge? Did you, did, you have, did you have any female friends read over that for you to make sure you... I did right. have a couple actually, yeah. and um, there are things that you you miss. Um, but actually, I found it more of a challenge, for example, to write in the in the voice of a seventy year old person. And and I think sometimes people can get hung up on the idea that writing in a different person's sex is like this really really big issue, as if there's like a huge chasm between what a man thinks about every day and what a woman thinks about every day. And I think you know ninety percent of what we think about is probably the same, and then there's that extra 10% in the men's, in the, ma the man's mind, which is sex, sex, sex. Um, but it's, you know, it's not that different. Whereas kind of dealing with Samir is, um, is Bangladeshi. Like, I felt much more like it took me ages to find his voice because I thought, I don't want to do that horrible, like, white middle-class thing of condescending to a mm. type of person I don't understand. And writing in the voice of a 70-year-old, you know, Joy's about the same age as me, but Barbara, all your cultural milestones that you want, you find yourself writing in the first draft are all bollocks because, you know, she, she hasn't experienced any of those things and you have to go back and research and think about it. How many drafts did you do? Oh, God, I mean, every sentence has probably been rewritten, you know, 20 or 25 times. It's really <sighs> painful. But, you know, re reading out that bit, I kept thinking, oh, that sentence is a bit shit. That's <laughs> So there's, there's still work to do, but it's, yeah, I mean, everything's been rewritten loads of times. I wish more writers felt that way about what they were writing, but it's not shit. It's a fantastic book. And thank, thank you. you for sharing it tonight because it is incredible. Thank you, Jonathan Lee. Thanks a lot.